You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. Good morning, Richard with you here, taking you through until midday today on Smart Arts. Hope you're well. I've been in bed the last couple of days with a cold, so uh, if at some stage you hear me coughing my lungs out and curling up, whimpering under the desk, you'll know why. But otherwise, things should be fine. Uh, it's going to be a busy morning, but uh, before I go on, big thanks to the Breakfasters. They'll be back with you tomorrow morning between 6 and 9. And on today's program, uh, we're going to find out about Convergence, uh, a one-day summit for independent artists at North Melbourne Town Hall coming up next Friday, the 22nd. We're going to be chatting to the Minister for Creative Industries, Martin Foley, and also uh, Louise Adler, the chair of the recently announced Creative Victoria Task Force, to find out exactly what the task force is and what they'll be doing. Uh, Plus, given that the Victorian budget was recently handed down, I have probably a couple of questions for the Minister about other areas of his portfolio, the creative industry's portfolio. Uh, So that's at 9.30. Coming up later on in the morning, we'll be finding out about a production of Breed, uh, a play about island and dogfighting, which is uh, happening at the Owl and Cat Theatre in Richmond from the 19th to the 30th of May. On the visual arts front, we'll be looking at the exhibition 21st Century Heidi, the collection since 2000 at Heidi Museum of Modern Art, chatting with curator Leslie Hart this morning. Uh, Then on the performance front, the World Sideshow Festival is happening in Ballarat over the 21st to the 23rd of May. We're going to be talking to its organiser Shep Huntley. Plus, Linda Catalano uh, is a producer of the touring show Briefs, but is now stepping back uh, to tread the boards in her own light as a performer with One Suitcase, Four Stories, a show combining storytelling, theatre and food. I'm looking forward to finding out about that. Uh, We're also going to learn about the House of Invisible Strings, an experimental performance art club uh, that's happening in Northcote, Uh, tomorrow, the 15th of May. And Cerise Howard is back from Europe and will join us for our Fistful of Celluloid segment today. So it's going to be a busy morning. I do hope you can stick around. Richard Watts with you here, taking you through until midday today, and my first two guests have joined me in the studio. Beck Berger and Dan Coop are here to tell us all about Convergence, which is uh, an independent artist summit. Is that a good way to describe it, Beck? Uh, summit? Uh, yeah, I think a day of discussion. Is that the same thing? It's not a, as epic as, as an uh, Everest or anything like that. Dan, uh, what was the the rationale for presenting this this event, essentially giving independent artists a chance to come together and talk outside the framework of, of a, a normal conference, for example, or industry gathering? Yeah, like I love conferences and industry gatherings. I, I kind of get a bit hyperactive and talk to a lot of people and I, I get a lot out of it as a result. But often I kind of feel that we're talking around the topic that I wish we were talking about, which is actually how do you make art? Why do you make art? Um, And, you know, sometimes there's this maybe assumption that people want to progress their careers by kind of going up a certain food chain. And actually maybe sometimes you are deliberately working as an independent and you actually see a lot of power in that. So 
you know, while I like industry talk, this is maybe a bit more of a chance to talk about practice and about how you work and why you work that way. And it's also a chance to maybe step away from the discussions around funding that tend to dominate these gatherings. Yeah, I think, you know, money complicates things. It, it, it creates a, a place where there's the haves and the have-nots and, you, you know, you kind of lose that focus on philosophy and ideology and and how we can work together as a collective opposed to working together independently and competitively. We, we want to try and go, all right, today, you know, guns down, everybody, let's just talk about us and, and how we work together. Which is an ambitious thing to, to attempt because sure. I get the feeling that sooner or later people are going to say, but we need to talk about the, the issue of funding, particularly perhaps in light of the yeah. recent federal budget, uh, more of which later. Mm. But... Uh, how will you stop them? How will you kind of, if somebody starts down that path, how will you then intervene to well, say, well, let's talk, let's step back and talk about why you make art rather than the finances of it? Yeah, look, I, I'm not really here to stop conversations. If if things are generated and that's where it goes, that's fantastic, I guess. I guess what we're trying to do, though, is frame a conversation and say, we've carved out a bit of time. All of our schedules are busy. So, you know, if, if we've turned up, we've decided that we, we value this and we're going to... Um, invest in a way so um, that conversation can definitely happen but maybe today maybe now we've decided that we'll talk about something specific that we don't usually get the chance to um, but yeah I think I think you know the financial thing is really present and you know particularly the r- recent events and you know they'll keep happening as the budgets and times go on but um, it's it's not the only way to kind of value what we do and we don't always make decisions solely based on finances, so let's talk about some of the other decisions we make and the other reasons we work. What are some of those reasons? Why uh, do you make art? Why do you facilitate the making of art? I think it has a lot to do with... I mean, independent practice, I think, is very specific in terms of uh, the outcomes and, and the reasons um, we do it. A lot of it has to do with um, kind of community or, or social equality. Um, this concept, I think, independent practice for me especially, and I think cause it's kind of our shared view, is that um, it's the right to choose what you do, when you do it, in what context. And... Um, uh, the, the idea of having creative control over what you do, which, um, like Dan was saying in terms of the food chain, that often the further you move up, uh, the less control you do have. So I think it's really talking about that control and that and, and that presence. And I think independent art is about independent thought, and that's just a very broad thing. And I think um, having independent thought in the public realm as a discussion, as as a kind of you know, Triple R is a fantastic place for that. That's one way of getting independent thought out there. It's not kind of sanctioned. It's not, um, it hasn't asked for permission. It's just done it. And I think independent art in so many ways, in whatever form it is, is about that. In terms then of the day itself, this um, independent convergence, which is happening at North Melbourne Town Hall next Friday, the 22nd of May from 9am till 6pm, um, what kind of artists do you want to come along? Are we talking performance? Are we talking visual? Are we talking the full gamut of art forms and practices? Yeah, we want we want everybody. <laughs> I think what we're we're asking, you know, I guess the provocation for the people to come for people to come along is that we want people that are open to talking about philosophies and ideologies around independent practice. Um, we've already had filmmakers sign up, visual artists sign up, um, performers, uh, performance makers. Um, let's try and extend that out, and if you know, if the, if if the philosophers want to come out, the scientists want to come out, that have something to say and, and really a genuine heart to bring to the table, I think that's something that we totally encourage. 
I yeah. like the idea of scientists getting involved in a conversation like this. Yeah, well, it's. I think art and science have a lot in common. And they're both at the edge of thought, of contemporary thought. And so in that sense, we've got a lot in common. And I think that's part of the, the urge of this event is that um, we have a lot in common as independent artists, as, as people kind of striving to create. However, we don't always feel like we're connected or collected together. So that, that dispersedness can kind of sometimes feel lonely or it can sometimes feel like you, or you just don't know what's kind of happening even a suburb over, even though there's probably a lot in common. So this is just a chance to maybe make some new connections and um, kind of uh, feel, feel a bit of... Um, connection throughout a, a disparate industry yeah and I guess break down those those walls of those kind of art form ghettos or the generational ghettos that that we find ourselves in as, as independent artists um, and and really try and bring a really diverse um, group of people together for one day and hopefully that continues on and um, becomes something much greater Talk to us about these, this idea of, um, of art form ghettos, because certainly I know, perhaps because it, it, being in the position I'm in, I talk to visual artists, I talk to theatre yeah. makers, I talk to dancers and so on, but um, would it be fair to say that often people who make independent theatre often only talk to other theatre makers? They don't, they're not necessarily talking to visual artists or to dancers? Or I think that can happen a lot. There, there's a lot of opportunity in Melbourne, though, because it's a really rich and varied city, um, and there's different times of year when you kind of feel like the focus is on certain things, so I'm not a dancer but man when dance massive comes around i'm pretty excited because i actually get influenced and inspired by a lot of kind of different things um but yeah i i think it some of it's education you know like when you go to theater school or you go to art school you know you can kind of like that's your cohort you, it, you do naturally stick with that for a while but a lot of the great shows and the great kind of creative experiences i've had have been about working with people who know something that you don't know and a little bit of that kind of philosophy mm. will be around on next friday i think yeah but you've got stuff to say about yeah i think i think it's that thing of of going um i think especially intergenerationally and and culturally i think often it's it's of ease it's you know who's immediately in front of you and that's kind of the cohort that is created um where we have a lot to learn about um uh, you know uh, in terms of emerging artists really should be you know uh, working with the established artists, not just with other emerging artists. And I think cross-culturally we should be working with people that come from places and, and times and contexts that we don't know. Um, mm. And that's where I think, um, th you know, some of the most interesting art and ideas lie. Yeah, we can kind of challenge that potentially... Um, s lazy assumption that independent artist means that you just haven't made it yet no yeah. you know there's actually no yeah. established artists who've been working like this for a really long time and have got a lot of uh you know learning to share and you know a, a really different kind of set of skills as well to share that's an interesting point the fact that independent artists uh the, i mean the independent art sector for those who aren't necessarily that familiar with it uh really is the the engine room of artistic practice in australia yes a, a small number of artists will leave the independent sphere and end up working in with a main stage theater mm. company or at the national gallery of victoria mm. or elsewhere but that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who are staying in the independent sector haven't made it they've mm. chosen to keep working in that field mm. and it's not to say that you know sometimes you dabble in uh you know that uh, if you're you know an independent artist that you don't sometimes necessarily take Take the bread from the majors, uh, and 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 kind of intersect uh, your practice through through independent practice, and then also through kind of um, through dealing with the majors or festivals and things like that. But it's about 
kind of where you value, where your values lie, whether it's, uh, well, not us and them, but but that thing of, of independence being a core, core yeah, value. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's mutually exclusive. I work for all kinds of festivals mm. and all kinds of things, but it's an in and out over your career. It's 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 not a kind of like I'm in phase A and I'm in phase B, um, it, in my opinion. So some yeah. other people might argue differently, and that's kind of maybe something that we can talk about. But, yeah, I, I think it's an in and out constantly, and they're the people who I admire who are fleet of foot, who can kind of, you know, work like work in their studio for one month and then kind of be out in public for the next month and mm. then showing work it's it's kind of a varied and rich um lifestyle and kind of career path actually mm. if you've just tuned in we're chatting with beck Berger and dan coop who are two of the three people uh, organizing con- and uh, the independent artists convergence a one day kind of get together at north melbourne town hall next friday the 22nd of may from 9 a.m till 6 p.m you can find out more details at independentconvergence.wordpress.com and uh, i believe it's a free event yeah what we're, what we're saying is we're, we're not getting paid to do it. Um, you know, we're busy people, uh, like a lot of artists are. Mm. Um, and so we've just said, well, why don't you just bring a plate, bring some food, we'll share that. That'll be a convivial moment. Um, and if you want to stay for the drinks afterwards, why don't you bring a bottle as well and then we can all share that together. Um, because this is a kind of investment in ourselves. It's not a, it's not a moment to um, ask you to pay for it. Yeah. We, we know that your time is actually the way that you're paying. Yeah, and it just helps us in terms of organising catering. Just... It's a bit of a kind of crowdsourced <laughs> vibe that we're yeah. going to have for this. We're going to build a structure and we're, we're go- we've kind of like um, put, a, put a, a fence around some ideas that we think are worth talking about. But really it's the people who come that are going to populate those ideas. It's not going to be about lectures. It's not going to be about um, us uh, on the microphone, uh, you sitting in a chair. It's going to be very active and very mm. um, driven by the people who turn up. Yeah, and I think we should also say that, you know, if there's anyone out there that, that has anything to offer in terms of time or effort or, or anything that you think might help us for the day, we'd love to hear from you. So if you want to jump on to that website um, and contact us, that'd be great. So the website address again, independentconvergence.wordpress.com. You'll find all the details there that you need. Uh, and you can email the organisers uh at independent.convergence at gmail.com. All that is on the website as well. So uh, just head along to, the, to that website, that URL, independentconvergence.wordpress.com for an event happening next Friday, the 22nd of May from 9am till 6pm. Artists from all fields welcome and indeed non-artists as well. If you're a, uh, a philosophizer or a scientist and you think you have something to contribute yeah. to uh, around that conversation of independent practice, then get along. Dan, Beck, thanks very much for coming in. Great. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. And my next guests join me in the studio. Uh, Victoria's Minister for Creative Industries, Martin Foley. Martin, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Uh, And Louise Adler, who is the chair of the recently announced Creative Victoria Task Force. Louise, good morning to you as well. Good morning. So... To begin with, um, when the news of this task force broke, I think a few people were scratching their heads and saying, what, what exactly is this task force going to be doing? It's charged with creating the state's first creative industries strategy. But what does that mean exactly, Martin? Uh, Richard, this is about making sure we deliver our election commitment. We consulted in opposition uh, around a range of groups 
And the biggest problem that we saw in terms of the policy frame of Victoria uh, arts and cultural sectors was there was no policy. That was a deliberate strategy by the former government. We made it clear that we would set a framework in which it's clear why we do what we do and how we partner with the community, how we partner with philanthropy and business and build a proper arts and cultural and wider sector framework. That's what this is about. After the election, we convened a number of roundtables, including with the Arts Industry Council Victoria and others, and through that uh, we talked about the sort of key issues, and out of that came this task force. Okay, so Louise, as the chair of this task force, what do you see uh, as the the main kind of aims that you have for this process? Well, first of all, I should say that I'm really delighted that we have a minister who's um, engaged in with the arts and uh, and culture. And um, when I've been talking to colleagues in the creative industries, I've t- told them a little story that I was like, and I think the minister's completely bored by the story, but I think it's entertaining. Which is that um, in opposition, Martin Foley uh, invented the title of Shadow Parliamentary Secretary for the Arts. Um, his colleagues didn't seem to be taking um, taking an exception to that title. And so he neatly segued into becoming the Minister for Creative Industries in, 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 in when um, Labor won office. So I think, you know, if we've got someone who's creative as to invent a title for themselves, he's our man for <laughs> our world. So I feel very encouraged by that. And he's certainly shown an immense amount of support and done a whole lot of hard work already in talking to all the people who constitute the creative and cultural industries. So I agreed to help um, with this task force and this process because I thought we've got a, we've got a minister here who's really serious about it. So I think it's a real privilege. We all know in the um, creative industries and cultural sector that we have many, many problems to address. We've got problems of um, demography. We've got problems of geography. We've got problems of affordability, of access to the arts. We've got um, issues about funding for professional artists. And the issues are, you know, myriad. And we've got an opportunity to rethink how we do what we do and at the same time to engage Victorians in the process. So I think of it as a dual um, project, if you like, both to ensure that creative industries thrive, survive and thrive and flourish in the 21st century in Victoria and also to engage um, Victorians in what constitutes having a creative life. So I think it's really complicated. I don't think it's simple. And I do think that money would help. And I'm sorry, Minister, I know that doesn't make you happy, but I know that the people in our world do know that money would make a big difference. But apart from money, there are other things that we can do um, Um, to engage ordinary citizens in a creative life. Australia, you know, Australia views Melbourne as the cultural capital. Um, Do we believe this is the cultural capital? And do we believe that in 2050 we'll be that? We will still be the cultural capital? And what would it mean for Victoria to be the creative state? So they're the questions, the big headline questions, if you like, that I hope we will find some answers to. So creating a a roadmap for the state creatively on a number of levels, both for individuals to engage with arts and culture and everything from uh, design and gaming uh, and other aspects of our creative lives. So looking at that structure and that process. So that's the roadmap we've got set out in front of us. 
to help create that, uh, we've now got a ministerial task force and an expert reference group, both of which got off to a slightly rocky start when various peak bodies from circus, theatre, uh, dance, and I believe uh, the museum sector as well uh, put up their hands and, and the said, architects and the architects. architects. Oh, my apologies to the architects. <laughs> they did put up their hands and say, uh, "Excuse me, why aren't we included in this conversation?" Uh, I think, firstly, because it's not a representational organisation. Uh, this is, and of course people come from various backgrounds and come from various um, uh, sectors, but the whole strategy is to try to leave behind, and I think people have, uh, leave behind the notion that you represent a, a part of the patch. The whole sector, the whole creative industries, the whole cultural field is changing enormously. This is not new. This is not something that's just happened uh, post the election. And we're trying to make sure that we have a range of creative thinkers, and yes, they come from particular backgrounds, whilst at the same time urging them and the whole community to get involved in a wider conversation here. Of course, there's a balance in there. We've got to make sure that uh, we've got uh, regions, that we've got particular groups, uh, settings, gender, um, identity, all sorts of issues covered in there um, to bring a diversity of fields. But it's not a representational group. It's an ideas group, and it's there to push the boundaries of the conversation, the boundaries of what creativity means to us as Victorians and Melburnians, and what that means in terms of how government operates. And if we're going to set that framework, how we then take that to the rest of the sector. And Louise correctly says it's about money uh, at one level. Uh, that's why our recent budget allocated, um, unlike other budgets I can point to <laughs> subsequently, uh, uh, substantial amounts of new money. We have not gone backwards, despite the fact that we inherited a range of programs that were expiring this year, uh, inherited savings measures that were pretty steep to deal with, and we've delivered in our first budget $200 million, uh, a lot of it in capital, I'll grant you, but uh, we've secured $26 million for the independent and emerging sector as a base uh, and we look forward to not just having that resource question but how we use those resources and how we use the wider opportunities that are changing nature of what creativity, what culture and what cultural practice means in our state. And could I just add Richard that um, I think um, yes I, I took it as a really great sign of enthusiasm that there were so many people knocking on the door and saying I want to be there too. I thought it was a Terrific, terrifically healthy reflex. I mean, I know we are, you know, great at whinging in our world, but, you know, it was also a sign of enthusiasm and, and a willingness and a desire to get involved. But the process is going to be quite deep and intensive and extensive, um, together with Creative Victoria, the department that, um, you know, um, serves and assists the minister. And we have, I think, something like 20 workshops and forums across all the sectors within the cultural, you know, the creative industries. Um, going to take place during June and July. Um, there will be online opportunities to engage online, uh, sub written submissions, you know, web webinars, all sorts of ways in which we hope everybody who wants to have an opinion about what's happening in the creative industries and what our future might look like, there should be no individual who doesn't feel like they have an opportunity to be heard. I feel very committed to that. I know that we have the support of the Creative Victoria Department to do that. There's an immense amount of work going on. So if you want to have an opinion, there'll be an opportunity for you to vent or to be constructive even.
In terms of timelines for development of the creative industry strategy, what are the critical milestones uh, and what structures might be put in place to, to amplify the, this process? Uh, a couple of big uh, stakes in the ground will be to get a initial report from the task force and the reference group by the later part of this year, October, November. We don't want to set an arbitrary date. We want you know, a thousand flowers to bloom, as it were. Uh, but we need a final report in the first half of next year. We want to inform how government operates. If our first budget, our first delivery year is all about uh, delivering on our election commitments, which we have, we now want to make sure that the next year is about building for the long term, putting in place the foundations for long-term progressive reform and in the cultural sector, I'd like to think that first and foremost means building a policy that works, that engages people and communities. Uh, at, at, the, at the sort of, you know, more um, uh, less policy, more, you know, um, in the field, on the ground kind of work, I keep thinking about... Um, careers of um, significant creative Victorians now and what's gone into making their careers um, th them the kind of cultural stars that they are today and every one of us in our different art forms will have a case study they could put on the table for me um, the most obvious one is Christos Cholkas um, Christos would have worked I think he worked in a, vet's, um, a veterinary clinic for many years um, he would have been um, the recipient of um, grants from modest grants and then maybe greater grants from Arts Victoria as it was then and the Australia Council and um, he writes probably three or four novels before he writes the slap and um, he would have been supported by you know public uh, public money taxpayers money he would have been supported by editors and designers and uh, copy editors and proofreaders in publishing companies and agents and the literary community and booksellers and libraries until we culminate in and I'm sure he's going to have a wonderful career thereafter but he, we culminate culminate in The Slap, which becomes a best-selling novel in Australia. It's a world book created in Melbourne that actually goes to the United States and to the UK and is a bestseller over there. A television series, which is immensely popular, is made in Victoria and then taken to the world and remade by the Americans. So much are they engaged by the terrific conceit that he establishes there. Do we have the right to slap someone else's child? It's a res it always resonates with me. But I think that's a wonderful story about what can happen out of um, creative Melbourne, creative, creative City, Creative Victoria, and that actually we are not really good as an industry at telling the story of how many hands. It isn't just that there's a creative genius at the heart of it, Christos Cholkas. There's a whole lot of people and a whole lot of effects that that work and the making of a writer of the, st of the status of Christos Cholkas, what that takes to create. And I think that's a really important story. There would be a million stories like that from every other creative industry. But I think it's those kinds of stories that we need to bring to create, to Victorians and to engage them in the process for them to understand this we've all been involved in the making of Christos Chalkas at one level and I think that's very exciting for us. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Martin Foley, Victoria's Minister for Creative Industries, and Louise Adler, the Chair of the Creative Victoria Task Force, uh, who is also uh, uh, the uh, Chief Executive of uh, 
Melbourne University Publishing. Well done. Now, um, Martin, obviously uh, we did have a state budget handed down just recently. We've also had uh, a fairly nightmarish federal budget in terms of its impact on the arts and particularly the small to medium arts sector. In your role as Minister for Creative Industries, how will you be lobbying the federal government to try to ensure that the small to medium sector and independent artists uh, are not too adversely affected by the recent federal uh, budget? Well, I think, like everyone else, we were a bit caught by surprise by yesterday's announcement that uh, the federal government was going to rip out over $100 million from the Australia Council and redirect it to the department for a yet-to-be-defined excellence program. My reading of it within the last 24 hours is that there's 31 organisations that Creative Victoria supports directly who would be asking some very significant questions today about what's the future hold for them, let alone the many hundreds of uh, artists and creators that they support in turn. I understand the Australia Council are meeting today People would have seen their fairly pointed media statement yesterday. Uh, Clearly they didn't see this coming either. Uh, We'll be consulting with those organisations, trying to figure out precisely what this uh, redirection of $100 million, a cut, means to uh, the Australia Council. Uh, We don't have an extra $110 million uh, or a proportion of it in Victoria to fill that gap. Uh, We need to find out precisely what this means and taking our concerns to Canberra. I'll just point out this is the same day that I've asked Victorians who want to be part of our arm's length panel decision making process to stick their hand up to make the equivalent kind of decisions we make to support individual artists and programs to go on new panels for Victoria. The same day we do that we see uh, George Brandis uh, rip out over $100 million from the equivalent national and to be blunt the much bigger pie. So this is of great concern. Uh, We need to find out precisely what it means and then we'll be taking our arguments to Canberra. Louise, a question for you uh, about the... uh the Ministerial Task Force and Expert Reference Group. Some people have expressed concerns that uh, the focus on creative industries may mean more focus on the economic benefits and values of the arts rather than a focus on the actual creative side. Uh, What's your response to those concerns? I'm exercised by that concern too. I share that concern and um, the Minister and I have had many discussions about this and I know that he cares. That's why we've got this clumsy... um, I wish someone would come up. Maybe we could have a competition and you could a prize from MEP, pick a book from MEP if someone can come up with a nicer way to characterise the sector or the industries as the creative and cultural industries. Um, I am concerned that we do, we do not view all of our work through the prism of um, the arts economic contribution. Uh, we know actually the facts are there that we um, contribute 8% to the uh, Victorian economy, which is a terrific number, and we hope to grow that. But I don't want us to just think about this through the prism of job opportunity or contribution to the economy. We want you know, the uh, state government to believe that uh, the arts are important in and of themselves. And it's an interesting um, discussion. My um, experience at the federal level has been that you know, our colleagues in the Labor Party are 
fairly concerned about those matters, about the economy and jobs. And it's the um, uh, the Liberals, the Tories, if you like, who seem to say, no, we'll support you because we believe in the arts for art's sake. Now, the counterpoint to that is, of course, to say, yes, but you believe in art, high culture, you're not supporting popular culture. I don't know where our you know minister <laughs> resides on that question, but I will be very concerned to ensure that the arts in their breadth, they are all industries. The book industry is an industry, but it's also made up of writers who are and, 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 and editors and so on and so forth and booksellers who are um, in, intently creative and um, they're professional artists and I want to make sure that professional artists are supported. You know, I think that's a very important matter for us and an important value. So personally, I'm just one of, you know, a number of people on a task force and an expert reference group, but I'll be very concerned that all of, all of what we do is not viewed through the prism of its economic contribution, which might horrify the Minister. No, it doesn't horrify me at all. First and foremost, Phew. this is about making sure that the cultural content of what Victorians love to do, love to participate and love to be an audience for has a framework that sets its path clear. We don't have that framework. We have deliberately not had that framework for four years under the former government. We need to be clear why we are in this space. But equally, we need to be clear that in the real world, we have seen over a decade's worth of cuts. Cuts that we've just, uh, we've seen Simon Crean's national uh, cultural policy now effectively unwound in two budgets. And we need to add to the range of arguments as to why the sector is important. Everyone in the sector tells me they don't want to be instrumental in these things. Neither do I. The whole cultural content is the key to why it is successful and needs to be successful. Uh, I'm sure many people have seen uh, Catherine Brisbane's recent article in um, Currency House, which after 30 years of you know experience in the sector, she suddenly uh, had this Damascus-like experience where perhaps having an economic overlay to things assists you. It can actually assist in the creativity processes. Now, you know, I'm not for following the model that she pointed to in the UK where theatre was basically decimated and somehow came out the other side, in her view, bigger and better. But unless the cultural content is supported as to wider economic and social value lenses, we are going to be this, we're going to be put in a corner and sliced to bits by the whims of the political winds, as we have seen in Canberra yesterday. So it's not an either or; it's a wider conversation that has to be driven uh, by the sector and by government, and that's the task that I've, I've shared with the um, task force and the reference group. Just before I let you go, a couple of other quick questions about other areas of the sector, Martin. What's happening with White Night Melbourne? Uh, well, it's the, the big party is subject to a uh, economic and operational review at the moment. Uh, so it's not actually delivered. It's not actually an arts and cultural event. It's a event. It's a major event to delivered by the Victorian Major Events Corporation. So they go through their processes of review after its initial couple of years and they're going through that. I think it's fair to say from what the Premier was asked on the night of the White Night Festival that uh, his presence there indicated that he had a view of strong support for it, but it's actually 
currently under review. Uh, another question for you about the Melbourne Cabaret Festival, which has just ah, launched yes. its sixth season. Yes. New branding, thir- and I understand 30 uh, brand new shows premiering in Victoria. Um, cabaret is a much more accessible art form than, say, main stage theatre, uh, and particularly main stage musical theatre. We know in harsh economic times, people flood to musicals, but not everyone can afford a $150 show. Um, at the Cabaret Festival, the average ticket price is around $30. This is a great example of uh, accessibility accessibility in action. But yet, despite being around for six years, the Cabaret Festival has not received support from uh, state government. You've been very supportive of it in your role as Shadow Minister. Uh, And as the local member for where it started. Indeed, yeah. Uh, What support can you look for to, to support the Cabaret Festival now? watch this space. Uh, our, our friends from the Cabaret Festival deliver a fantastic, you know, on, the, on, on all of their own sweat, from nothing, they have built this uh, beautiful little gem of an organisation that has spread its wings uh, around uh, inner Melbourne and beyond. Uh, I'm confident that that will be recognised. But by the same token, they're an actually example of how the creative sector from nothing has blossomed at huge risk to the two guys that have run it. But we want to make sure that that support is recognised. Currently, the State Library of Victoria is looking for a new chief librarian. The position description mentions that they don't have to have any experience in libraries, which struck me as slightly surprising. Uh, Well, the, the... job of the CEO of the library uh, is a pretty big gig. Uh, the key uh, task that will be setting that person over the next five years is the complete uh, rebuild and redelivery of the organisation in both a physical and digital world. Uh, and that's the kind of skills that the board, as the arm's length from government, um, uh, process have set in place. Uh, but it does talk about, I've seen the ad, it does talk about a wide, wide range of skills. And I think that's what you need in a modern 21st century organisation. It's a library. We've all been there. It's one of the most popular cultural institutions in the, in the country, in fact. Uh, so how all of those skills get brought to bear is it's important to its future. Look, I've got dozens more questions that we don't have time for, so I think we should probably... We'll come back sometime. We will. We, uh, Louise, look, uh, just a, a final comment from you. People listening who are artists involved in the creative industries in one way or another, if they want to uh, make contributions, suggestions, etc., to the task force, can they go about that in an easy way? Absolutely. It has, I think it's a, uh, in the process, but a website will be set up by Creative Victoria, which will uh, call for online submissions. There'll be forums, chat rooms, a whole lot of ways in which people can engage in the process and we welcome, as the Minister said, may a thousand opinions bloom. And I promise I won't shoot them down as a result, as apparently our federal colleagues uh, intend on doing. Minister for Creative Industries, Martin Foley and Louise Adler, Chair, Creative Victoria Task Force, thank you both very much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Richard.
time to talk independent theatre. I'm joined in the studio by director J.D. Ness, who is uh, directing a production of an Irish play about dogfighting that's being presented in Richmond shortly at the Owl and Cat Theatre at 34 Swan Street, Richmond, just over the road from Richmond train station. If you've not been there before, J.D., good morning. Good morning, Richard. So this particular play, Breed, uh, by... Uh, uh, what's the playwright's name? It's uh, Lou, Lou Ramsden. Lou Ramsden. It's only been staged once before in the UK. It certainly How has. did you discover it? Uh, I discovered it by the lovely owners down at the Allen Cat Theatre. And, uh, yeah, they presented it to me and said, uh, would you be willing to direct this script? And I had a, a read and quite literally could not put the script down. So I read it in full and uh, fell in love with it uh, straight away and away we went. Cool. So, I mean, it's been described as a play about dogfighting, but it's clearly about much more than that. It certainly is. It's got a lot of attributes. Um, domestic violence, which is probably a major part. It's a, it's a big thing at the moment. Uh, going around all the social networks and things like that, you can kind of see it coming out through there. So it is quite uh, important to touch on that one as well. Now, is the playwright uh, Irish or has just chosen an Irish locale for the setting? Uh, Lou Ramsden, I don't know whether she is either Irish or English, but... But she's um, a very expressive playwright. She writes some lovely and very confronting scripts. Um, so tell us, uh, what was it about the, the, the play then that made you fall in love with it and, and not be able to put it down? Uh, is it the language? Is it the, the the way she balances drama? Is it a combination of those? Yeah, look, for me it's always about telling a story and um, being able to, to let the audience take away something. And uh, when reading the script, uh, there's a lot of different attributes that really um, jumped out at me and, and I really wanted to be able to tell that story. It's not something that uh, every theatre does put on. And I think it's important that we do have that balance out there in the um, in the theatre world. I've, certainly one of the reviews I've read from the UK compares her scripts to the likes of um, uh, Mark Ravenhill, Sarah Kane, these kind of like uh, sometimes quite shocking and provocative playwrights. Is it a provocative play? Uh, yeah, it is in some sense. It is definitely confronting. Um, it's, you know, it, it touches on issues that most people probably don't want to really know about. They want to neglect um, for the fact that if it is put in front of them, then they have to obviously acknowledge that it does happen. Uh, which then makes it sound like it's not necessarily going to be an easy play to stage and direct. It's going to take quite a bit of uh, skill from the actors uh, and from yourself as director to stage those confronting scenes involving domestic violence, involving dogfighting, etc., to, to put those on stage in a way that, um, I, I don't know, kind of provokes the audience but doesn't disgust them. Yeah, exactly. It is a very hard thing to do. Uh, the beauty of this is I have five very, very talented actors and um, they've been very, very uh, receptive in, in taking on board what they need to do, the task at hand, and they do it in such a manner and such a way that it allows the audience to, to I guess, be part of, of the show and be involved, I guess. Um, is it the kind of show that uh, there are going to be prominent warnings displayed in the foyer? Um, not so much. Uh, look, uh, we, it's not. Uh, we're not going to really set any dogs out on any audience members or anything like that. So <laughs> they can come rest assured that they're going to leave in one piece. Now, uh, given that it's set in Ireland. Uh, 
Are you doing it with accents? We certainly are. And um, the cast have beautiful accents. They are spot on. I absolutely, I, I fall in love with their accents. I, I particularly have a fondness for the Irish and English accent myself. So um, if they weren't doing it correct, they'd sure know about it. So where in Ireland is it set? And are they, so are they having to do like a, I don't know, a Cork accent, for example, versus a Dublin accent? Or uh, have yeah. we just gone for generic Irish? Or? It's actually quite, it's quite a mixture of, um, of the Irish and then London accents as well. So um, if you had to place it anywhere, you'd say places like Derry. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you have a dialect coach, or is it the, the actors just doing the hard work themselves, sitting the, watching lots of YouTube videos, yeah, for example? The actors have done most of the hard work themselves. Um, one in particular, uh, our actor Jen, she's um, taken on, uh, it upon herself and really got her friends from the UK and her friends from Ireland to, to give her some samples of certain words that she's struggled with. But um, her accent's beautiful. Now, given that the dog fighting is an aspect of the play, um, I'm, are there actually dogs on stage? Reviews I've read from from the the UK production talk about the sound effects of dogs off stage, but uh, no use of actual animals. Your uh, publicity material does feature a, a dog. <laughs> it certainly does, and um, we, we had a, a generous uh, participant to lend us a dog. But uh, given the small space of the Alan Cat, uh, having a, a rampant dog in there would be quite difficult and uh, I wouldn't want to um, put that onto the audience either so no we don't actually have any dogs in there so but we do um, of, of course simulate it through sound effects and the likes. Yeah now obviously as anybody who's been who keeps up with current affairs in Australia will know the the subject of uh, live baiting and uh, mm. in the greyhound racing industry came up recently and I think shocked a lot of people. There are some quite unsavoury aspects to, uh, to, to working with animals um, which is obviously pushes a lot of people's buttons. Is that something that, again, this play is going to be exploring to a degree? It certainly does. And um, as well as, obviously, the the dilemma that happened with the greyhound industry, it is important to note that dogfighting does actually happen here in Victoria. And it is a um, it's something that I guess is unknown to, to those out there, but it does happen. Um, at the moment, it's happening in Melton and in Berwick. Uh, so it's, it's actually quite important that we actually touch on these issues. Yeah. Um, is theatre the best way to, to explore those issues, do you think? I think it's it's definitely an avenue um, to portray and uh, explore it because people, I guess, you know, you could listen to the news and people, I guess, don't want to really be confronted by those issues all the time, whereas you can go out and you can actually get a different... A different aspect I guess of viewing it and you can actually find out about it through a different medium and I think theatre is a beautiful way to do it because they also come away with a story. And I guess one of the things that a theatre production like uh, Breed uh, allows you to do is to to draw an emotional connection between uh, abuse towards animals and then abuse towards your fellow human beings mm. as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we all love dogs. There's, there's a massive following for dog lovers well, out there. Well, I'm a cat person you're, myself. You're a cat person, that's OK. <laughs> well, animals in general, you know, and uh, obviously fondness for everyone else. So there's there's a story for everyone in this, uh, whether it be dog fighting, whether it be domestic violence, but it's it's people come away with a story and they can actually relate to these people on, on some level. The production is Breed, written by Lou Ramsden and directed by my guest J.D. Ness. It's on at the Owl and Cat Theatre, 34 Swan Street, Richmond, from the 19th until the 30th of May at 7pm, with a Saturday matinee at 2pm. Uh, tickets are very affordable, 25 bucks for an adult, 20 bucks. 
concession and the preview tickets are $15 and you can uh, find out more information at owlandcat.com.au if you would like to book. I'm not going to give you the long complicated URL for the try booking details but uh, there will be a link uh, from owlandcat.com.au if you would like to book for Breed directed by my guest JD Ness. JD, thanks for joining us. No worries, thank you very much Richard. Hope it's a very successful production. Me too. Now, when you think of Heidi, uh, and specifically uh, the Heidi Museum of Modern Art, rather than young women dancing around in the Swiss Alps, um, you quite possibly, like many people, think of Australian modernism and art uh, of the 30s, 40s, 50s, the Angry Penguins, the Heidi School, and so forth. But Heidi is very much also a museum of modern art, uh, as its current exhibition demonstrates. 21st Century Heidi, the collection since 2000, uh, is running across all three of the Heidi galleries and is looking at the very contemporary art collection that it has. Joining us in the studio to tell us more is co-curator Leslie Harding. Leslie, good morning. Good morning, Richard. So uh, is it fair to say, do you think, that uh, a lot of people think of Heidi more as a, a repository of history rather than uh, uh, a cutting-edge contemporary art collection? Look, possibly so. I mean, that's really because it's tied up with the, the reason why we're there. The, the founders, John and Sunday Reid, um, bought Heidi in 1934, moved it in 1935, and they were really um, very much supporting cutting-edge art at that particular time. So um, avant-garde, things that were perhaps a little bit outside the norm, and certainly the burgeoning modernist movement. And I suppose... Heidi, in a way, has continued very much in that spirit in that we still champion, exhibit, collect work by people who are practising in a contemporary sense. So this new exhibition, uh, 21st Century Heidi, um, Heidi, as a a museum of modern art, has collected, uh, what, over a thousand new works, I think one and a half thousand. Yeah, uh, that's right. uh, Since the turn of the century. Um, How do you then select from one one and a half thousand works to, uh, to, to distill down into the essence of uh, this particular exhibition? Well, it's no mean feat. And I have to say, it's a really um, wonderful opportunity to get to know the collection again really well. What tends to happen when you're a curator is that you, you know, people approach you with potential um, acquisitions and you might work with that collector or the donor and um, work up a proposal about the particular artwork and do some research around it. But, you know, there are a, num- a number of other curators on staff who are doing the same thing. So for me, it was a really lovely opportunity to get to know um, works that I haven't necessarily worked directly with before. Um, but that said, there are a number of really big donations to Heidi um, since the year 2000. Firstly, the Barrett-Reed uh, bequest, which came in and had a number of works from John Sunday Reed's collection as well as things that Barrett had collected himself. He was actually in residence at Heidi after the Reeds died. Um, the Bellew Meyer collection of the 80s was a really large donation. Um, and also the Barbara Tucker gift, um, that's been rolling in over a period of time. So I suppose um, the exhibition is not just, not simply contemporary art, although we go back as far as I think the earliest work in the show is about 1956. We've just recently acquired the most beautiful, jewel-like uh, Frank Hinder abstract. So it fits very much in um, John Sunday's thinking, I guess, looking at what was you know, at, at the forefront of um, art of the day. But I guess most of the work in the show across the site is um, more contemporary, things that have been made since the year 2000. And 
predominantly by Australian artists or a, a mix of Australian and international? No, predominantly by Australian artists. In fact, almost, I'm just trying to scan my mind to, to see if there's any international works. There's possibly a few Louise Bourgeois works that came in um, as part of um, some international acquisitions. Uh, no, I, in fact, a German artist um, that I worked with, Christopher uh, Dalhausen, um, has a couple of really beautiful, exquisite collages in the Heidi 2 building. So, yeah, we tend to collect more, though. Our focus is very much on Australian art and, um, as I say, things uh, that relate to the collection in terms of um, modernism. So we tend to uh, be interested very much in artists who um, either critique modernism or take a cue from modernism in their work. Such as? Well, for example, Callum Mortem is a, a really fantastic sculptural piece which is called One to One in the main galleries. And Callum had a show with Heidi a few years ago and he made this work um, for, the, for the exhibition. It's since become part of the collection and it's a complete uh, replica of the fireplace in the Heidi 2 building. So we put it into Heidi 3 and there's a soundtrack that features um, an interview just before John and Sunday Red died. So you've got this very kind of spooky, um, sort of ghost-like refrain hovering over the artwork but it's an identical replica in fact it's immaculate it's made out of polystyrene but you'd never know it almost looks like we've transported the fireplace into the other gallery space so there's that sort of thing I mean he's very much about modernism and um, memorialising it I guess in a, in a sense and um, and critiquing it um, and then there's a, a similar work also a monumental work by Cathy Temin that we've had the opportunity to bring out again which I'm really delighted about which takes its cue from a Frank Stella painting um, in, and which is obviously a 2D work, um, but she's recreated it as a whole room installation with knee-high barriers. So um, if you can imagine a series of uh, right angles um, that are painted, uh, you sort of walk through this kind of maze and you can step over them and so forth. But it's a really interesting way of uh, looking back into the history of modernism and um, taking a kind of more contemporary view of it. And certainly um, Cathy also overlays a lot of her work with um, interests that she has, personal interests in um, the persecution of um, Jews in the 20th century. So um, that particular Frank Stella work has as the title uh, the, the, the saying that's over the, uh, the opening of Auschwitz. So there's a kind of a definite reason for Cathy to kind of have to have selected that work and then be bringing it up uh, to speed in a contemporary sense. So it's one of the things that fascinates me about an exhibition of this nature is the the conversations that happen between artists and between artworks across time, which an exhibition like this can then embody those conversations and that that process of of, uh, of referencing and self-referencing and, yes. and so forth. No, oh, absolutely. I mean, in the in the main spaces, we've we've looked at a whole series of kind of themes. I guess there's a really beautiful work by Daniel von Sturmer which is um, I won't give too much away because it's kind of like a trick and an illusion um, but it calls into question the way that we perceive things and in fact the other works in the room are, are predominantly photographic works and there's a couple of pieces by a fellow called David Thomas he's a professor at RMIT and an artist at Heidi's worked with quite a lot um, and he works with in photo media so he's photographs are overlaid with a painted sort of obstructing square and it I guess it's a contemporary city scene, Tokyo, um, but you've got this inhibiting um, veil over the front surface of the picture that makes you wonder what's behind it. So it's it's about looking at um, looking at the past and um, taking things from the past, but also um, endowing it with a kind of contemporary relevance. Now, some of the other artists who are represented in the collection, I know there's uh, some work by Patricia Piccinini on show, for example, in 21st century Heidi. Now, she's a... Um, 
um, an Australian artist whose work continues to fascinate me, regardless of whether it's her cars or her, her strange yeah. mutant animal people. What work is, uh, is displayed here? A number of smaller works. We do have some sculptural pieces by Patricia in the collection, but some other works have come in in recent times. Um, and of particular interest is a, a work that I suppose, I mean, it's variously described. I had a, a conversation with a child in the gallery the other day who said that this particular furry piece looked like a wombat's bottom (laughs) and quite delighted in that Um, and Patricia uh, very much in her work um, that she creates this sort of sense of discomfort so that you really need to resituate yourself um, in relation to the work and have a good think about why you're feeling uncomfortable about it it's they're kind of metamorphosed creatures I guess Um, but there's also some painted works by Patricia in the show. Those opportunities to have that kind of conversation with a child who's visiting or something that must add a, a particular thrill to, to your working day, I'm guessing. Look, it does. And I really love it when children engage very um, openly with art. We, we run a fantastic education program at Heidi, um, and which encourages um, uh, broad thinking about art. And so the children have conversations in the gallery and they brainstorm um, and they are enabled to look at artworks in different ways just by asking very simple questions of them. And but I mean, this, this was just a, a regular visitor who was really beguiled by Patricia's work. I mean, there are other works in the in the exhibition that are less disturbing, that are more disturbing or less disturbing as well. Um, and equally, there are, you know, landscape works and, um, you know, uh, abstract works. There's a, there's a whole range. I guess we've tried to show very much a cross-section of the sorts of things that um, have been coming into the collection over the last 15 years. The exhibition is called 21st Century Heidi, the collection since 2000. It's uh, showing until Sunday the 14th of June and of course as you would expect there are a range of uh, additional events happening such as an art talk with Patricia Piccinini on Sunday the 31st of May at 2pm. There are also exhibition tours uh, and of course a a great range of works to look at uh, out at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art Uh, and uh, if you've never been to Heidi before 7 Templestowe Road, Bull is the physical address and online at www.heidi.com.au. So uh, definitely an exhibition to check out. Leslie Harding, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks, Richard. Right now, though, we're not going to think about Heidi. We're going to move to the north, to the highlands, to Ballarat, where the World Sideshow Festival is happening from the 21st until the 23rd of May. Joining me in the studio to tell us more, Shep Huntley, the man who's put all this together. Shep, how are you going? Thanks for having me, Richard. I'm great, thank you. Oh, good. Good to have you on. So you've been a sideshow performer for years. You're yeah, a long kind time. Of one of the, the people who's really been pushing, uh, I guess, the resurgence of sideshow. Yeah, well, you know when Jim Rose came out? Um, oh, I do. can't exactly remember. Late I 90s? I seem to recall snogging kind of a, a couple of the, the, the boys from the Jim Rose side show yeah. at some okay, so yeah. I do remember them too yeah they were up for a good snog uh, well I saw that and I thought me and my friends can do that sort of material in a much more friendly positive uplifting sort of way it doesn't have to be grungy and hardcore and macho we can make it a whole lot more fun. So me and the Space Cowboy and Captain Frodo started the thing called the Happy Side Show, which was a direct 
reaction to the grunge and anger of Jim and his crew. So that's where it started. And since then, I've just been on a mission to sort of make it a little bit more acceptable and a little bit more palatable and a little bit more mainstream. Is there the risk, though, then, if you're trying to make something, an art form, more palatable and more mainstream, that it will lose the essence of what made it fun and exciting in the first place? The fact that it was kind of... It was the sideshow. It was off to the side. It was not the main attraction, so therefore could be more provocative or more challenging. Yeah, I, I... I understand where you're coming from, but I don't think so at this stage because at this stage all the audiences are still completely fresh. So all the audiences are seeing it with new eyes and they're reacting in the way we would expect them to react. Maybe if this thing, if the ball does get rolling in 30 years, people will be saying, oh, Sideshow, that's so old hat. I'm onto the new thing. But at the moment, this is still the new thing. Well, burlesque is a good example of something that went from the fringes and has now become very, very mainstream. That's right. And it's perhaps some burlesque acts certainly have blanded out a little bit. They've, they have. They've become a bit watered down. You're right about that for sure. Yeah. And, yes, I suppose... Uh, There is a danger of that happening, but this early on in the game, we still haven't bubbled over into uh, mainstream consciousness at all. It really still is a subculture, and it still is populated by purists. Um, I I wouldn't be too disappointed if it did get watered down a little bit um, to reach a broader audience. I think that would still be fine. For people who aren't familiar with Sideshow, what kind of acts are we talking about? I've heard it described as circus on steroids, for example. Yeah, well, probably the easiest way is um, to say what it was. In the olden days, there'd be a big top, a big circus tent, and on your way towards that circus tent, you would see little acts in little tents that were the Sideshows. So essentially, it's all the acts that didn't fit under the big top, that the, the aren't in the category of circus. So that's where you would see the weird and the unusual. That's where you'd see the sword swallower. That's where you'd see the mind reader. That's where you'd see the people who are shaped incredibly differently to normal humans. So basically, it's uh, weird and unusual acts. So uh, you can be guaranteed that at the World Sideshow Festival, you, you won't see any jugglers. Uh, but you will see people lifting incredible weights with their eye sockets. Okay. Yeah, that contextualises it, <laughs> does it? Yeah. yeah. Good. Cool. So uh, in terms of then uh, assembling the acts for uh, this inaugural World Sideshow Festival, um, I'm guessing, given that you've been in the business for years, you've got contacts all over the world. Um, have you? Is it literally a, a showcase of some of the best acts from around the world or have you focused primarily on Australian performers just because they're easy to get hold of well, and probably I've cheaper? Done, yeah, exactly. I've done a little bit of both. I've called it the World Sideshow Festival so it can expand uh nothing like thinking big that's right but um because of uh where i am and where i am in my financial position i couldn't afford to get people from everywhere so i've got one main international act this year and then i've got what i consider to be the cutting edge of the australian acts and you're right i am sort of uniquely placed because i've been in this game for 20 years and i do know what works and what doesn't work and what's hot and what's not hot. So I've just managed to hand-select a few of the best and put them into this package. And at the top of it all is the Lizard Man, um, the body modification king. You know, you know. remember the Enigma from the 90s and the Jim Rose show? The Lizard Man is where he was 20 years ago. So he's completely tattooed green. He was the first person ever to have his tongue split in half. It's called 
bifurcated or something. <laughs> anyway, he's got independent movement of the two tongues, which is phenomenal to look at. Um, and he's, he's actually a very considered human being. People think, oh, you're mad to get your body painted green, tattooed green. But he's got two degrees in sociology and philosophy and so on, and he, he's a very considered human. And this is a, a living art project. It's not just a, I'm going to go get myself tattooed while I'm drunk sort of situation. He, he meant every piece of modification to become the world's only lizard man. Now, some of the other acts that people may have heard of, you've got Lilikoi Chaos, for example. Who's and isn't she great? Yeah. Yeah. She's actually at the moment running away. She's the star of Circus Oz at the moment, but she's running away from Circus Oz, running away from the circus to join the sideshow for the weekend. She was a big staple of one of my shows, the League of Sideshow Superstars, for years. And then, because we work sporadically, she thought, oh, I think I might like getting a weekly paycheck. So she's gone to Circus Oz for a little while. Um, and then I rang her up and said, could you please come and do the Sideshow Festival? And she talked to her bosses there and they've given her the weekend off. So we get her. She's literally the top of the tree in her game. So it's great to have her there. Uh, you've also got uh, the Dirty Brothers. You've got Captain Ruin, who actually is going to be a guest on the show in about an, uh, 45 minutes' yeah, isn't time. That strange? Talking about a different project yeah. that he's running. Um, and I understand a late addition to the... Bill, David Splatt, who amongst other things plays the, the saw, the musical yeah. saw beautifully, yeah. does puppetry and, and other forms of art yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I really am happy that he's said yes because he adds a whole nother emotional depth to the show because, well, I mean to the whole festival, because a couple of the shows are quite hype-based. Um, there's Guinness World Record holders breaking Guinness World Records and there's no way to describe it but big, exciting and hypey. Um, it'll get the audience screaming. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got this beautiful, sad little clown playing the, playing the singing saw and making his marionettes dance at the same time. So I really like to feel that Sideshow is not just for excited teenagers. Sideshow can be pretty much for everyone. Say The Dark Party which has uh, performed by the Dirty Brothers, that's been in the National Theatre of London, it's been in the Sydney Opera House, it's um, done... Spiegel Tent here in yeah, Melbourne. famous Spiegel Tent. So lots of sort of esteemed venues have had that in there and that was, I reckon, the first show that really put emotional depth into sideshow acts. And what's happened here in Australia is we've really been at the forefront of adding some sort of theatricality and some sort of depth to Sideshow. In America, it's still like it was when Jim was doing it in the 80s. It's still ripped jeans and ripped T-shirts and look at me, I'm so hardcore. But here, we've spent a lot of time working on lighting plots and developing some sort of oh, some sort of connection, some sort of pathos with the audience and, and creating a bit more of a beautiful, deep piece of theatre. <laughs> So it's it's really this is people who who come along to the World Sideshow Festival in Ballarat from the 21st to the 23rd of May will see an art form that is evolving. That's right. Yeah, it really is. And I I felt after watching it evolve since well basically for 15 or more years, I went this explosion is happening now. We have got a great chance to make 
this World Sideshow Festival. And if I don't wake up this morning, buy the domain names and do it now, somebody else will do it and all these Australian artists will miss their chance because they'll just get unrecognised and their contributions will just disappear into history. But now we've done this... It's not going to disappear at all. This whole festival is getting filmed by the students of Federation University and broadcast live over the internet. So I've been um, emailing people in Norway and Iceland and America saying, log on, watch this thing live. You can see where Australian artists are at. Um, and it'll get documented and each one of the artists who goes there at the end will get a DVD filmed on four broadcast quality cameras and mixed live and given to them. Um, so as I say, it's not going to get lost now. And there was a big chance that it was. So I feel really happy that we've grabbed the name and we're going to run with this thing. Fantastic. Um, if people want to get along to the World Sideshow Festival, uh, a season pass is 120 bucks, and that gets you into all five shows during the festival. Yeah, and yesterday I was talking to someone about it and they were saying, is it anything like Absinthe or... Uh, or the other one that they do, I can't remember, uh, Empire. And I was going, well, no, it's a whole lot, lot more more real and more visceral and there's no pretense. And for the price of one ticket, you get to see five shows. Um, what I've done is also made the opening night cabaret really cheap. That's 20 bucks. It's on a Thursday night and it's basically a two-hour cabaret where you get to see a little bit of every show and every artist. Um, and I made it cheap because I want people to come to that and then choose what else they'd like to see. But then I thought, if people are into it, why not just commit and buy the weekend pass, which gets you all five shows, and I think you end up saving maybe like 30 bucks or something on, yeah, on the whole weekend. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, that's what I thought. If people want more info, they can go to www.worldsideshowfestival.com, uh, happening up in Ballarat on the 21st to the 23rd of May. What's your venue or venues? It's called the Ballarat Mechanics Institute and it's built something like in 1861 it's a really old theatre, it's got, still got gargoyles on the outside but it's had a renovation uh, I think in 2010 to the tune of something like 8 million bucks so inside it it's got all the perfect lighting rig and a service lift and it's got everything you need a theatre to have to make brilliant theatre but it looks like something out of I don't know. Out of the gold rush. Yeah, out of the gold rush, exactly, yeah. 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 The World Sideshow Festival from the 21st to the 23rd of May uh, at the Ballarat Mechanics Institute, uh, 117 Sturt Street, Ballarat, if you know your way around town. Um, and for more info, as we said, jump online, www.worldsideshowfestival.com. Shep Huntley, thanks not only for joining us, but thanks for putting the festival on. I hope it's a huge success. My pleasure. Me too. <laughs> See you later. See ya. Richard Watts with you here, taking you through until midday today here on Smart Arts. It's been an action-packed show so far. We've had sideshow, we've had visual arts out at Heidi, we've had uh, theatre about domestic violence and dog fighting, we've had the Minister for Creative Industries in as well as uh, a discussion about independent practice. We're now going to continue that idea of independent practice a little bit, talking about a new work called One Suitcase, Four Stories, uh, performed by Linda Catalano, who some of you may know more as a producer rather than as a performer. Uh, and she is directed by Penelope Bartlow, who also joins me in the studio. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so 
Linda, you, you're taking your, your briefs producer's hat off and treading the boards again for the first time in how long? Oh, it's been, I think, seven years since I actually performed in anything. So it was a very um, strange hat to put back on. It was an old, well-worn favourite that was sitting in the back of the closet, that hat. And... Um, I love producing and working with the boys um, and that spirit of of independent theatre and I hadn't uh, performed myself for such a long time. So it's been really interesting, Richard, and lovely to be in a different headspace. So, Penelope, how did you get involved? Did kind well, of Linda come to you and say, help, I need a director? Or what was what's the process? Linda and I were both on the Darabin Arts Advisory board or committee. How fancy is that? It's very fancy. And we got yakking one night and Linda was telling me about how her family all live in West Garth and she grew up around there. And I have a back, oh well, I have a long background of working with Italian community, like bilingual theatre. I trained in Commedia dell'arte in Italy. I've lived in Italy. So a bit of a passion there. And when she told me this, I thought, oh, let's apply for um, Speakeasy. Well, we didn't get Speakeasy. Um, but the uh, city of Darabin approached us and said, hey, what about the Darabin Homemade Food and Wine Festival? Would you consider having our support to put this on for this? Of course. So that's how it came about. And uh, a food and wine festival is an excellent place to stage One Suitcase, Four Stories because it's a theatrical adventure uh, involving food. It's all set in my kitchen. So I was told these stories growing up because in my family, and I think I'll in a lot of um, immigrant families, you don't get told the stories of, you know, Cinderella or Red Riding Hood or any of those things. Um, my nonna, my grandmother and my dears, my aunties, cast themselves in the role, the main role, that the protagonist of all the stories, and they tell you the story of how they came to Australia. And they always do that whilst they're cooking, and you always have to be helping them in some way. And they will criticise you as you're in the kitchen, of course. You never roll the pasta thin enough. You haven't chopped the, the fruit and veg the way that they want. Um, so... As they're talking to you, you get told these amazing stories of how they came to Australia and they put their own embellishment on that. And so that was the inspiration for this piece. So it's a really personal piece for me. So after not performing for so long, to be performing something so close to the bone is really interesting. And which must present challenges for you as a director then, Penelope, because when this is such a personal story, um, do you have the same liberty to shape it uh, and, and, can, and direct its flow uh, as you would with a piece of fiction? Um, actually, it's not problematic at all. There's this delightful kind of simpatico that we have. There's, there's some weird synchronicity where we both don't really like working with scripts that much. And so, and we've got this whole fluid team of artists, Barking Spider artists around us that seem to be able to work in this way where there's a fluidity. So we we looked at creating it in a traditional Comedia dell'arte style, which is with a canovaccio or... A, a scheme, a, what do you call that? Like a, a skeleton structure, yeah? Basically. Yeah. So we know that you're going to go from point A to B to C to D to E, etc. But how exactly you get there might change each night. It's pretty fluid. It's a lot like the recipes that I'm working with, you know. Like when I'm talking to my family and I ask them, you know, what the recipe is, they're like, oh, well, you put a bit of this and a bit of that and you'll know it's ready when it feels like this, when it smells like that. Like there's no actual recipe. Yeah, and it's so not it can like three quarters of a cup of it's just kind of a couple of handfuls exactly and then there's the ingredients they leave out altogether because surely that should be obvious like there's always wine in sauce you don't even list it 
you know, there's always parmesan cheese in everything. So you don't, you don't even talk about it. It's only when you're standing there watching them that you go, oh, that's why my, you know, gluten intolerant friend always gets sick when I give them that thing because actually you think it doesn't have any gluten in it. But, you know, f- flour sprinkled a little bit to bind it is still going to make them, all of those, all of those things that you notice. And you're like, oh, okay, yes, makes sense. So for audiences who come along to One Suitcase Full Stories, they're not just going to get uh, family stories and migration stories and which I think are really important stories to be told at a time when our federal government is so frightened of people coming from overseas. So uh, to celebrate stories of migration and survival and family, I think are really important at the moment. They get those stories, but they also get food. You're going to give them food and wine and they get to smell and taste. And You get a whole fa- Italian family experience from the minute you set your foot in the building. And the food is incredible, like antipasto up to your wazoo and then well, I'm not going to tell you about the main <laughs> course and dessert are, but it's, it's like, so oh. funny because I am literally turning that space into the kitchen the way that I know a, a storytelling kitchen family kitchen to be. And um, the recipes are authentic, you know. So my dad came to a rehearsal and um, the first thing he said to me when the show was finished was, you haven't given away that 300-year-old sulgo recipe to anybody <laughs> <laughs> and I went, well, you know, it's got it's got to live beyond our family. It's it's got to kind of be out there in the world. Um, but you sort of it's serve yourself. So where um, I might go through it's the whole menu if that's all right. Oh, you reckon? Oh yeah, go mm. on. Oh, um, all right. <laughs> because you get you get antipasto, you get um, lasagna made in the traditional Calabrian way and you get a couple of salads i won't go into exactly what and, and a lovely red wine red wine of course a red little red. bit of vino and ricotta cannoli for dessert and cafe of course that's yeah. the thing you don't mention that you always have <laughs> <laughs> gotta have coffee you're making me hungry or you walk into the theater and it just smells like cooking and all sorts of different smells from coffee to the sugo, the sauce, and it's just and, and scent is such a powerful emotional trigger, and it's and yet it's one of the things that we rarely use in theater and in performance. It's perhaps it's the it's the underutilized scents. Um, we in other most theater you get you get sight, you get sound, um, but you very rarely get smell unless it's perhaps the sweat of the performer on stage under the lights, <laughs> yummy, of which there is usually. <laughs> Plenty. I, I have to say, I find it a very sensual, th- like food is sensual. And if you look at food prep, we all wear, well, not we all wear, but, you know, you go to the corner store and everyone's got rubber gloves on now. But there's this beautiful moment in the show where Linda's talking about the letters from how, how people communicate in the past via letter. And as she does so, she's placing sheets of lasagna that the audience have made over her arm so there's this beautiful sensuality with skin on food which is so not oh health and safety or (laughs) you know we're not trying to get the show closed down (laughs) no i'm the producer i didn't say that (laughs) now uh you did the first preview last night how'd that go it was so fun it was great it was like a big family, twisted family function. It was beautiful. I really enjoyed it. Everyone hung around afterwards chatting. They chatted like family, didn't they? It was really fun. It's just really fun. The production is One Suitcase, Four Stories. It's on at Northcote Town Hall in the West Wing studio. Uh, if you don't know where Northcote Town Hall is, I'll, I can give you the street address, 189 High Street, Northcote. It's pretty easy to find, even if you've not been there. Just drive up to the top of Rucker's Hill, look around, you'll find a church uh, over the road and down about half a block. You'll find 
a town hall. It's very easy. Um, uh, it is performed by Linda Catalano, uh, directed by Penelope Bartlow. It sounds like it's going to be great fun for audiences who get along. It really sounds... Instead of having to eat a quick meal before you go to the theatre, you can go to the theatre and eat a good meal. Indeed. We will take care of all of that. And as well as the food, you get stories. So uh, it sounds like a good deal to me. <laughs> uh, on from tonight until the 17th of May, uh, so Thursday, Friday, Saturday at 7.30pm and also 1pm matinees on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, uh, actually, the Saturday 1pm matinee has been... Pulled. Okay. Yeah. So just Sunday at 1 p.m. Yeah. Cool. Sorry. So that's okay. I'm glad we let people know rather than people <laughs> turning up in, on a blustery Northgate day. Hungry. Would it be a disaster? They'll have yeah. to come there for the 7.30 show on Saturday night <laughs> or 1 p.m. on Sunday. Linda Penelope, thank you very much for joining me and uh, chookers for the show. Thank Thanks, you. Richard. Thanks for having us. Richard Watts with you here. I'm joined in the studio by my penultimate guest for the morning, Mitch Jones, a.k.a. Captain Ruin. Good uh, morning. How are you? Good, thank you. Good how are you? Oh, I'm dosed up on uh, on cold and flu medication and feeling quite happy at the Great. moment. Getting through it. Getting through it. I'll get home this afternoon and collapse into a small quivering heap, no doubt. But <laughs> Now, you're joining us to talk about a, an experimental performance art club, which is an intriguing idea, the House of Invisible Strings. So, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on performers to have a finished, polished, ready show, whether it's ready to tour, ready to be staged. This is an opportunity to do the reverse, really, to just, what, experiment? Correct. We uh, want to create an environment where performers who might be professionals, might be amateurs, might be complete first-timers, have the chance to essentially experiment with their practice and try out new ideas in front of an audience that is uh, invited to see experimental art. So the audience are ready to see stuff that is um, not polished, not finished, uh, and the performers feel comfortable to try something that's been on their mind and ask themselves questions uh, through their practice. So when we say experimental art, do we mean people who are experimenting with new ideas in their art or people who are really pushing the boundaries of an art form? I think both. Um, what I've perceived recently uh, through my work as Captain Ruin, which involves doing a lot of carnivals, a lot of cabarets, a lot of burlesque shows, is that um, Melbourne has such a vital uh, vaudeville scene. You know, there's so many solo independent artists here who are working their acts, they're working their skills. Uh, in sideshow, burlesque, circus, cabaret. And uh, I think that's an amazing thing, but it often leads to people being very focused on the professionalism of having a finished five to eight minute act that's set to music and it has a particularly designed costume and they know exactly where it goes in the running order and they know all the moments to hit and it's glossy and finished and they sell it for how much they think it's worth. And I think that can actually create a sense of stagnation in the performance um, because people are not necessarily not trying to advance their art they're yeah. trying to find that performance slot yeah absolutely and i think it's super important that performers are able to make a living so there's definitely uh, a very strong role for entertainment um, within popular culture but what we're trying to do with this club is create an opportunity for people to go beyond that and to maybe put some of those concerns aside and instead of asking themselves kind of 
how much is this act worth, they're going to ask themselves as performers, what will happen if I do this? Because I know that I have a whole notebook full of things that I go, oh, I wonder what would happen if I did this on stage and it went for 10 minutes and I covered myself in chicken grease and tried to do amateur breakdancing. You know, just like the, the flights of fancy that your imagination takes you on, this club is about indulging those for one night and literally trying out new things. Which strikes me as a really important opportunity because comedians, for example, get a lot of opportunity to, to rehearse, essentially rehearse new material in front of an audience right. by going to open mic nights and, and try out nights and a lot of, uh, of the, the comedy nights around town you'll see comedians, particularly in the lead-up to the festival, trying out an, uh, a routine for the first time in front of an audience. So comedy has that opportunity. Musicians clearly have the chance to, to re- practice new songs with an audience to see how they respond and go, oh, no, we'll leave that one out of the set next time or whatever. But, yeah, for, for more physical-oriented performers, um, burlesque, uh, circus, sideshow, etc., there's not that opportunity. Right, because putting something in front of an audience creates a completely different dynamic where it is... Uh, I think participatory and the way that the audience responds to things is always going to inflect and change the way you do it next time. So you actually learn far more by being in front of a live audience as a physical performer. So the the night that you're putting on, uh, the House of Invisible Strings, which is happening tomorrow night, uh, the 15th of May from 9.30pm to 3am, if people are in it for the long haul, is happening at 24 Moons, which is at 2 Arthurton Road in Northcote. Who's performing and what are they doing? Well, we have a huge, literally huge lineup of some of uh, Melbourne's most illustrious artists. Um, we've got Ten Fingers, who is somebody who just recently ran the Miss Perfect Runway as part of the Melbourne Fashion Festival. She was also part of the collective of uh, Awkward Amazing. She's doing an, a piece of endurance art called uh, Resting Bitch Face, where she's going to try and hold a particular expression uh, while a number of other people come up and kind of interact with her. Um, we've got Wazadina Wharton Thomas who's a long-time collaborator of mine, um, also from the Caravan of Doom. Uh, we've got a performer that I just met recently called Subject 628, who works a lot in kind of quite grotesque, costume-based, really visceral, working with a lot of um, liquids and fluids and offal and meat and that kind of stuff. He's going to be roving around the venue. Uh, we've got people like James Wellsby, who's um, a VCA dance graduate whose show Hex um, has just toured the country uh, in the last year. He's going to be trying a new idea in uh, one of the rooms off to the side of the venue. Um, We've got Gypsy Wood, who's a very well-known burlesque and cabaret performer. She's going to be doing an act that she hasn't been able to do in Australia before because there hasn't been the appropriate venue for it. Uh, We've got a piercing suspension. We're going to have somebody hanging themselves up on hooks. We've got a shibari rope suspension. Um, There's literally, there's so much to see. So that's why it goes so late into the evening. Um, The idea is that 24 Moons is a really amazing new venue, uh, which is putting on a lot of shows at the moment because they're trying to get themselves out there. Um, It's just uh, near the corner of Separation Street and uh, High Street in Northcote. And they have quite a late licence, which goes until 5am. So our idea is that uh, we want this club to be quite unique. So it's not like you rock up at 8 and you sit down and you see the show. Uh, The first band starts at 10, and then from 11 until 2am, there's three hours of immersive performance art all around the venue. There'll be rovers, there'll be stuff happening over the top of you, there'll be stuff hidden away in 
tiny little rooms. There'll be stuff popping up on stage. So definitely uh, something for the active uh, audience rather than people who are just sitting there waiting to be entertained. Yeah, I think that's another thing about breaking from the orthodoxy of popular entertainment is that it's not just about the content, it's about the form of the event. I think everybody's been to a cabaret or a burlesque show where you sit down and you watch the act and then you go to the bar and then you sit down and you watch some more acts and you clap when you're told to and you watch the stunts. That's kind of not what we're interested in. We want to do things that are really encouraging people to participate and to explore their own role as audience members and how that can um, influence the the world around them, which is similar to the last time I came in to talk to you here about our show that we did last year, which was also from theatre. Do you think entertainment is sometimes a dirty word? Um, Yes and no. I consider myself an entertainer. I definitely see that as a big part of what I do. But I think it's important to balance the limitations of what entertainment is against the desire to make things that are more radical, I guess. And um, I see it as really important to acknowledge that people need entertainment, people need joy, they need distraction sometimes, other times they need provocation, which can be neatly packaged by entertainment. it's one of the things that art does that makes me delight in art because on the one hand you can just go and see something that is light entertainment and that Mm. ticks all the boxes it's beautifully produced and packaged and that's what you want another night yeah you want to be challenged you want to experience something darker or stronger or more intense and you look for a different kind of art the fact that that full spectrum is available and I imagine that spectrum is going to be uh, on display at the House of Invisible Strings well I think the thing this gig uh, putting it on was actually inspired by a conversation with a a performer called Azaria Universe who has been making work in Australia for uh, a couple of decades and she got her start performing in a club called Club Kooky in Sydney which um, has a really amazing reputation as having inspired a lot of the performers who are now doing stuff like the Burlesque Hour so people like Moira Finnecane, Azaria Universe, uh, Maud Davey, they all got their start in these clubs that provided a space for new performers to come and try out things and you end up getting these really twisted, uh, interesting, creative languages from people having that space. So I, I think that this club is providing that to Melbourne at a time when it's really needed. The House of Invisible Strings, the uh, Experimental Performance Art Club, is happening tomorrow night from 9.30pm at 24 Moons, located at 2 Arthurton Road, Northcote. Tickets are 10 bucks on the door. Um, and uh, for more info about some of the acts involved, you can go uh, jump onto Facebook and look for Polytropic Productions. Mitch Jones, thanks for joining us, and uh, I hope it's a great night. My pleasure. Cerise Howard. Very good morning to you too, Richard Watts. Welcome back. It's nice to have you back in the studio. It's been uh, a few weeks. It's been quite some number of weeks. Uh, six, seven, eight, I'm not sure. It about to feel six or seven. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's nice to have you back. Yeah, and uh, Melbourne's put on a beautiful day for the occasion, <laughs> hasn't it? Uh, how was Europe? Where did you go? Uh, it was uh, largely around the centre of Europe, um, Czech Republic inevitably. Spent a little bit of time also in Berlin and in Geneva. Lovely. Mm. 
Now, uh, I'm guessing while you were there, you managed to see quite a few films. I did see quite a few. That was part of my mission, um, running a Czech and Slovak film festival here. Uh, we'll have another instalment of that in September. I thought I could hardly resist the opportunity to attend a Czech and Slovak film festival actually in the Czech Republic, not least because it was in Pilsen, which is uh, where some beer comes from that I am quite fond of. And being that close to the source was not unpleasant at all. Good to hear. Well, let's talk film. What shall we start off with today? Well, there's quite a mishmash of things we could cover. Uh, We've got a a brand new blockbuster, which unusually is quite Australian. We have um, something that uh, opened the Spanish Film Festival here some weeks back, I think, which I believe you've got a giveaway for a little bit later. Uh, The Human Rights Arts Film Festival is on right now. The German Film Festival begins this evening. And Melbourne, as ever, is awash with cinematic goings on. So would you like to stare me, Richard? Where where, where should we begin? Well, look, let's start with a a brief discussion about Mad Max uh, Feminist Road. Feminist Road, yeah. Fury Road. Fury Road is the official name of the film, but um, a men's rights activist group in the States are up in arms about it because it's got a strong female character and it's feminism, feminist propaganda under the radar, men should not go and see it, rah, rah, rah. It was, really? Uh, yeah, really. Oh, the poor dears. What was particularly amusing about it was that they said this is um, the destruction of an important piece of American culture, to which all of these people then started responding on the internet going, you do realise Mad Max films are made in Australia by Australians? Yes, starring Mel Gibson, who'd lived in the US for the first 12 years of his life, but... Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so Mad Max, Fury yes. Road, over to you. Well, yes, it's been 30 years between Mad Max's if that is the correct plural. Uh, the What do we get when we add one to a trilogy, Richard? I've been struggling with this. A, a, a quartet. Quartet. A quartet. A quartet of films. Yes, we're talking for an ology, a logy or something, and it's no good. But yes, a quartet of films uh, set in a post-apocalyptic wasteland with Max getting madder and madder and madder, and yet seemingly also uh, strangely indestructible. He, he really is put through the ringer. One film after the next, after the next, and into this one where Max Rokotansky, um, as now played by Tom Hardy, opens the film in voiceover. Uh, just, uh, in fact, one of many voices, perhaps they're the voices in his head, but also helped to position us in this wasteland. It's a, a world in which everything has gone horribly to hell, and in which really all you can do is survive. And even then, maybe it's not worth the trouble, because chances are you'll just be haunted by all of the people who've suffered owing to your shortcomings in the past. But uh, really, for all of Max's existential woe, what we really watched this film for is the extremely exciting, if not downright lunatic, stunt work and vehicles and where those two things collide. And collide they do often and spectacularly. This film entirely delivers on the promise that uh, it's... uh, Well, uh, this this has just been something I've been aware of for the last few years, ever since I heard that uh, George Miller was keen to revisit the Mad Max universe after many years in the sort of animated, more child-friendly, not wilderness exactly, they're very successful films, the Happy Feet films and Babe, Pig in the City. But uh, when, when I first heard that, firstly, this production was going offshore as uh, Broken Hill had... Had flowered. <laughs> yeah, had flowered and completely destroyed uh, any dreams George Miller had had of filming this um, latest Mad Max flick uh, in Australia, off to Namibia which was, I think, possibly a bit of a blessing. The landscapes there are extraordinary. It's not just desert like a nice flat or, let's say, just gently 
undulating sand dune sort of a desert. There are cliffs and rocks and uh, all manner of uh, terrifying, bleak uh, landscapes and formations and things which vehicles can crash into, uh, including, of course, also one another. And again, just breathtaking camera work like in the previous films where I just I fear for whoever was operating these cameras, uh, unless it's all done by drone these days, which is perhaps possible. But it's, it's extraordinary fun. And yes, the feminist angle is interesting because Charlize Theron plays a character, the Imperator Furiosa. I don't know that George has always had the best knack for naming his characters. They can get a bit silly. But she is fantastic and, and something of a Ripley from Aliens mould, at least uh, superficially. But uh, a little bit in, in her, her um, how she carries herself and the, the kick-ass attitude that she applies to uh, her enemies and vanquishing them in no uncertain terms. Uh, look, m many of the other cast, there's lots of little Australians thrown about the place. I, uh, Iota is I, in it, I, I understand. Iota is extremely memorably in it, though I had no idea that's who it was under this costume, but plays a character, the Doof Warrior. Um, the, the soundtrack for this film is 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 quite diegetic, let's, by which I mean to say that a lot of what you hear on the soundtrack is actually occurring within the, the film's universe, narrative universe itself. So when all of these vehicles are out on the warpath, uh, a couple of the vehicles seem to be principally charged with the responsibility of providing the soundtrack for the mayhem, and that includes one of them, uh, a character, the Dwarf Warrior, being strapped to the back of one of them and kicking out some pretty furious power cords while swaying around madly and being scary. Well, uh, there's a weirdly there's an almost a historical um, uh, forebear for that character. If you think about Roman war galleys, for example, and the pounding drums yeah. to keep the slaves yeah. kind yeah. of rowing, um, nonetheless that sound must have carried over water. Uh, so yeah, I, I can see the historic parallels there, and it makes me m even more intrigued to see the film, particularly given, as you say, that it's all happening within the cinematic world that it they is. inhabit for the most oh, part. Oh, the drums are there as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost um, uh, dogma-esque in that regard, although the rest of the film, I'm sure, has nothing to do with the uh, the, the dogma movement. No, no, restraint and uh, chastity in terms of <laughs> the application of cinematic language are not really to the fore here. Now, given... There's sometimes the hype around these films that, oh, you must see them in the biggest possible screen, you must have the IMAX experience, which for a lot of these films, for me, doesn't really... Um, it, that doesn't ring true, and you can see them just as easily in 2D and pay less money and so forth. But is this an IMAX experience, Cerise? I did not see it at IMAX, and I saw it in 2D rather than 3, which I believe it is also available in. Um, so uh, it's, it's difficult for me to tell. It looked like it... Uh, it was very much shot for an ordinary cinema um, aspect ratio. Great. So uh, I don't know that it is necessary. But then, again, if, if really the IMAX presentation is simply what I saw last night, but just embiggened, that wouldn't hurt either. And if the sound system is, is huge, that wouldn't hurt one little bit either. So uh, it sounds like uh, Cerise rather enjoyed Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, I, I look, I really did. I really did. And... Um, Gosh, yeah, and uh, Charlize Theron has gone up uh, considerably in my estimation too. She really carries this film almost more than Tom Hardy, who does exactly what's required of him, which is just to be tormented, really. I'm looking forward, I must say, more to one of Tom Hardy's upcoming films, uh, perhaps slightly more than, than this one, in which he plays the Cray Twins. Oh, yes. Um, uh, yeah. Both of them, thanks to the magic of cinema. Look, um, do you know much about the film Wild Tales? 
That I do, Richard. The Argentinian film from writer-director Damian um, uh, Zifron uh, from a production team which includes a couple of Almodovars. It's um, actually a hell of a lot of fun. It's a sort of it, it's six or seven stories. Six short films looped yeah. together under an overarching overarching theme of vengeance. Yes, I have seen this actually, and. Uh, you know, while these sorts of films tend to be a little uneven, uh, if this one is, it's still even though even the weakest one's pretty strong, and the opening one is extremely memorable. Well, uh, Wild Tales is being presented by Cinema Nova. It's nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. It was a hit at Cannes and film festivals around the globe, and is opening at Cinema Nova in Carlton on May the twenty-first. If you are a Triple R subscriber and would like to get along to see Argentinian director Damian Chiffron's Wild Tales, presented by Pedro Almodovar. Uh, then I've got two double passes to give away, two in-season double passes, which can be collected from Triple R. 93881027 is the number to call. And uh, while we uh, take a call or two, well, two calls at random, let's listen to a quick track by Courtney Barnett, her latest single, Dead Fox. Cerise Howard, I believe the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival is on at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll go from talk of as entertaining a film as that one is and, and quite light, no matter its uh, theme of vengeance, to some rather darker, more challenging and more real, real-world-based fare at the Human Rights Arts Film Festival, running uh, already a week now and until next Thursday. And I've seen a couple of things, not least because I'm on a jury for the International Short Selection, Obviously, I'm not about to give away the winner that I and my fellow jurors uh, arrived at the other day, but I can certainly uh, recommend both packages of shorts. One of them is this very evening uh, at Acme, and uh, another is next Tuesday. Well, they're a really interesting bunch, each taking a, a quite a different slant on human rights from a, a Swiss comedy, you could say, where... Uh, a, a situation soon escalates in a small corner store and suddenly all of Switzerland's pretensions to happy multiculturalism is uh, kind of made, oh, uh, skewered really. It's a nice satirical little comedy and uh, discipline this evening. It's a really lovely uh, Iranian story, very moving uh, gay love story, Aban and Khorshid, which one suspects may not end well. And um, a third interesting one from this evening is a, a documentary on somebody who is contemplating whether or not to learn whether they will have Huntington's disease and, if so, bracing themselves for that uh, rather grim illness's um, uh, symptoms in the lion's mouth opens. And uh, the second shots package has one film that really grabbed me called Baghdad Messi, which is not unlike a, a film from some years back called Turtles Can Fly, a, a wonderful film set in Kurdish Iraq, set around uh, an area, very, very real um, pr problem area full of landmines that are yet to be exploded. And unfortunately, when they do explode, they tend to take children's arms and legs off with them. When all the kids may want to do is actually just get a satellite television set up on top of one of their little makeshift houses and watch football. Rather lovely. Um, the opening night film last week, I Will Not Be Silenced, I think it's garnered rather a lot of press attention and quite rightly um, from Australian filmmaker Judy Reimer, this um, really uh, extremely distressing but also quite inspiring documentary account of one woman's life, uh, Charlotte Campbell Stevens, 
in Kenya since 2006, uh, subsequent to her vicious gang raping um, and her attempt to have uh, justice served in the rather ramshackle legal system in Kenya over seven years. Uh, a really extraordinary film. It, it's, it's hard to make to suggest that that's going to sound like uplifting viewing, but the human spirit is strong in this woman and she is an inspiration. Uh, it was actually extremely moving being there on the night. She was there, as was the director. A standing ovation was duly given both. Uh, the film has one, uh, two more screenings. One is sold out, but an encore screening has been added for Monday. Uh, yes, next Monday, 6.30pm. I, I would really urge anyone to to check that out for, for both a terrifically well-made documentary but also uh, yeah, it's gruelling viewing but sometimes uh, it's <laughs> so gruelling you can't, can almost not help but laugh in a way that it's, things get so so bleak uh, it's, it seems to be Charlotte's own experience within the film that the, you know, the legal system then so broken uh, it's so distressing but also the, the, the blackest of black humour can be found uh, nonetheless um, I think the film, yeah, it's, it's, it's just just a tremendous documentary as an equally distressing one I'd like to recommend to us on next Wednesday. And this was the opening night film of a, a human rights documentary film festival I attended in Prague last year. It's called Miners Shot Down. Um, and it reconstructs the events surrounding a massacre um, yeah, um, of mine workers in South Africa in 2012. When I say reconstructs, um, there's actually a lot of documentary footage in it. Uh, some of it extremely grisly and, and all of it distressing and all of it a reminder that uh, whilst apartheid might formally have been uh, finished with and put to the back burner some years back, uh, all is not well in South Africa. There is still tremendous inequality, tremendous corruption and occasionally tremendous brutality from the very forces you would hope to maintain law and order. Uh, for the massacre was largely at the hands of a police force over there. Again, a really tremendous film um, and uh, eye-opening and distressing uh, and probably one to see with a friend, I would suggest. I think that goes for a lot of the, the stronger stuff at this uh, festival. It's, you know, it's it's not the sort of film festival I find that I can binge binge watch at. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's I do, like, yes. Yeah. You can't kind of bounce from session to session to session yeah. the way you might at MIF, for example. Yeah, some of these films need a little bit of uh, decompression afterwards. Uh, but uh, nonetheless for it, I mean, they're, they're, they're extraordinary films, rare opportunity to see them in the cinema. And um, I, I think it's just a really tremendous program this year, uh, running until next Thursday. For more information about the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and the two films Cerise has mentioned in detail, the encore screening of I Will Not Be Silenced and the film Miners Shot Down, jump online to uh, hraf, H-R-A-F-F dot org dot A-U. much time for me to go so many thanks for the pleasure of your company this morning i'll be back on the airwaves next thursday between 9am and midday with more arts news and interviews and conversations um big thanks to all of my guests this morning uh, particularly the minister for creative industries martin foley and louise adler the chair of the ministerially appointed creative victoria task force uh, and if you want a little bit more information about that task force uh, 
creative.vic.gov.au is the place to go and you'll find a link there giving you all the details of the task force and the people on it in case you want to know a little bit more. And if you missed that interview with the Minister, you can listen back to it via Radio On Demand or the Smart Arts Podcast. As I said, just about time for me to go, so uh, stick around. Chris will be funking up the airwaves uh, for the next couple of hours between midday and 2am, and uh, I'm sure that once again he'll have an action-packed show, and I'll try and have an action-packed show for you next week. Catch you next Thursday. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.